there, it's Gary Parish. It's Thursday, September 5th, 2019. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and we're nearing the end of our annual Candid Coaches series. I hope you've been keeping up with that at CBSSports.com. There's been three questions that have published since we last recorded an episode of the Iron College Basketball Podcast. And those questions are A, what's your number one issue with the selection process for the NCAA tournament? B, do you support an Olympic-style model for college athletics that would allow student-athletes to profit off of their name, image, and likeness? And C, what team do you think We'll win the 2020 NCAA tournament. If you follow this at all, you know what we do is ask more than 100 college coaches these questions. We take the answers, uh, we add it all up, and then we publish the results. So, Norlander, let's take these uh, one by one, starting with uh, the one I mentioned first. Uh, Were you surprised uh, by the leading answer to the question, what is your number one issue with the selection process to the NCAA tournament? The answer we got most, 32% of the time, was that there seems to be mid-major discrimination. It is harder than ever to get an at-large bid um, from outside of the traditional power structure. I thought something along those lines was going to be the winner GP. That wound up being the case. Now, this was... uh, To me, I I loved this question for the responses I got back. I, with what you sent me, what I had, I had to massage a couple of answers into a couple of genres here. Um, we'll note that 10% of the coaches we polled said, I got no issues. Coaches love to bitch just to bitch for, for bitching sake. Um, so, hey, listen, to the ones that said no issues, uh, more to you. But I still think that this process can still be enhanced, improved upon, and a lot of the coaches we spoke with obviously voiced that. The mid-major discrimination, I heard a lot, and... It won with 32% of the vote, and also I spoke with at least 10 coaches who didn't necessarily log their complaint in that department, so to speak, but they definitely brought it up as well. So it is something that is a continual problem, and the reason why, and this was coaches at major conferences, not just, you know, I didn't, all my answers for this particular uh, response didn't come from guys in one bid leagues. It came from major conference coaches as well, because as you well know, Parrish, uh, a very high percentage of college coaches at the division one level have been low major coaches uh, at some point. In fact, not even just that, but if you find any coach that's under say 45, 50 years old, chances are good that the majority of their time in the coaching profession, or at least a significant portion of it, was spent at the low major level. So there is still empathy for those coaches currently in those situations, even long after you've landed as a head coach or an assistant at a Big Ten, SEC, Pac-12, et cetera, et cetera kind of school. The biggest issue with the mid-major discrimination that I heard from coaches is, one, they still feel like the committee doesn't properly adjust or gauge for the hurdles that come in scheduling. And when that happens, when you get to March and you look back and see who they played, who they didn't, and the laments and complaints that happen every July and August when these programs are trying to schedule bigger schools. I'm not talking about trying to get you know, home and homes with five schools from power conferences. It's like, can we get one school – you know, a top four A-10 school to come to our place. We can't even get that oftentimes. The committee doesn't uh, overcompensate for that. And a lot of coaches believe that it should, or if it comes down to a coin flip and you look at a small, smaller school that's gone, you know, 25 and 5, and you're weighing it against a, a power conference school that 
isn't nearly as good record-wise but had four times as many quad one opportunities, um, the committee should more often not give the benefit of the doubt to the smaller conference school because in addition to that, what a lot of coaches told me, Parrish, is – and I, go, I do agree with this um, – we love to see an appropriate champion when we get to the Final Four and all that, but the allure of the tournament is filling out your bracket uh, having it blow up on you, okay? And the small schools that create these really big moments in the first couple games of the weekend, the tournament has a great way of surviving all of the chaos that happens with it because inevitably you still get big conference schools, interesting schools, and occasionally an amazing story like a Loyola or a VCU into the Final Four. The tournament is, is almost foolproof in that way. So there were other responses we can get to in a second, but I wanted to kind of stick on the mid-major stuff to start with. I know you have thoughts on it uh, as well. But those were, you know, hand-in-hand hand the two biggest reasons why coaches explained it to me in addition to the 20-game league schedule, which I'll, I'll let you handle if you'd like. To um, the mid-major discrimination, to me, is the obvious answer. And like you pointed out, um, obviously this should be an answer from a mid-major coach. And it is also an answer from a significant number of high-major coaches because, again, like you pointed out, um, those guys probably used to work at the mid-major level. So they understand, as well as anybody, the struggles when it comes to uh, scheduling and when it comes to building an at-large resume. To me, this has been rigged against the mid-majors for a while, and it's only getting worse. What they do, the high-major programs, is they they won't play them in any sort of fair setting. Like they'll they'll buy you, and and make you come try to beat them on your home court if you're good, but not too good. Right. But um, they don't want to play you on a neutral court, and they sure don't want to go to your place with rare exceptions. So they won't give you a fair shot if they give you a shot at all. And then you're left with an option of either just take the game under any circumstances, which I'm on record saying if you think you've got a team good enough to get an at-large bid from a mid-major league, um, you should just take the games no matter what because um, you know it's going to do you no good sitting there on Selection Sunday complaining about how nobody would play you. The committee does not care. They're strictly looking at your resume. And that's another thing that coaches point out. We wish they would understand – that we just can't get the games in the way that, that, that gives us a real opportunity to try to build an at-large resume. But, again, the committee doesn't seem to care about that. They're only looking at what you did and, and, and did not do. And so what these high majors do is they won't play them, and then they spend you know the, the four days leading up to Selection Sunday screaming, yeah, but that team hasn't played anybody. So I totally get it. I do think it's a real thing. And my biggest gripe would be, and I've said this for years, um, that the selection committee seems to value quantity of, you know, of 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 resume building wins right. as opposed to your hit rate when given opportunities. In other words, if you are a mid-major team, a traditional mid-major, and you had three quad one opportunities and you went two and one in those games, like that's good. And yet you will get, um, left out because they'll include, say, a Big 12 team that had 13 opportunities and went, uh, you know, five and eight in quad one opportunities. But the committee will look at that and go, well, they got five quad one wins. That's three more than this other team, even though they didn't um, they didn't take advantage of those opportunities at the same rate as the mid-major because they've gotten more wins than the mid-major at the quad one level. Um, it seems to resonate more with the committee than 
than, than it should. And to me, when we're talking about all the different ways there is mid-major discrimination, that's the biggest. They, they do not allow you, or for whatever reason, you don't get the opportunities, and they, they then use that against you. And that's um, it, it's why it's, it's coaching at the mid-major level. It's among the reasons, at least. It's it's harder than it's ever been. Yeah, and I do want to get to just a couple notes on the other responses we got, but let's just let's stick on this mid-major thing for just a couple more minutes here because I, I'm always up to talk this no matter if it's September or if it's March 15th, GP, as you know, and some of those podcasts leading up to Selection Sunday are my favorite ones that we do every single year. So in the story that, uh, that we posted, I detailed the past five years' worth of at-large bids that went to schools outside, you know, the major seven conferences, because obviously the American now is clearly in that, you know, it's expecting a minimum of three, so I didn't include the American. And so in 2015, you had five, Boise State, BYU, Davidson, Dayton, and San Diego State. In 2016, just two. They both came from the A-10 in Dayton and VCU. The next year, just three, Dayton and VCU again, in addition to St. Mary's. 2018, last year, it was Nevada, URI, and St. Bonaventure. And then this year, the three schools that got at large biz that were not from uh, major seven conferences were Nevada, VCU, and Belmont. Here's the discouraging thing. The only school listed there that's from a true one-bit-ish kind of league was Belmont. I mean, VCU and Dayton, the Atlantic 10 is a multi-bid league. The Mountain West, which is where San Diego State hails from, a multi-bid league. Um, BYU from the WCC, it can be one bid le- a one-bid league in weird years where Gonzaga dominates and no one else is there, but usually you're having either BYU or St. Mary's crack through in some way. It's really only Belmont, and that's discouraging. If you go even back further from the previous five years, a lot of those at-large bids are still mostly largely taken up by Atlantic 10 schools, so the point is, obviously, there's a precedent for this, and it's getting worse uh, because, one, I I almost kind of half believe that Belmont only got in because there was a, there was a significant push uh, among amongst national media about Belmont, Greensboro, Furman, and Lipscomb because those four schools had differing cases. But I remember us both talking leading up to Selection Sunday. We felt Belmont had the strongest case, and lo and behold, Belmont got in, only got into the first four, but they did get in nonetheless. Now, what makes this even more difficult going forward is the 20-game league schedule. So when UConn goes to the Big East, the Big East is going to go to 20 games because it'll be an 11-team conference. You'll play 10 opponents twice. allows you to have a true round-robin there. Obviously, ACC, Pac-12, Big Ten, SEC are in that area as well. The Big 12 uh, will be the only conference uh, of of you know, true uh, major distinction that will not do that uh, as a result of its uh, of its 10-team configuration there. Um, the American is already uh, has multiple conference alliance schedules to help uh, its league out. So going forward, what we'll have is, GP, we'll have fewer and fewer opportunities because it's not just the 20-game league schedules, which are um, tangibly taking two non-conference games off the table. You also have a lot of these... Gavit Games, which is Big Ten versus Big East, ACC, Big Ten Challenge, you've, you know, SEC, Big 12. You've got those already baked into the schedule as well. You've got Champions Classic to kick off the season. If you get scheduled for, say, a Jimmy V game, that's another one. Uh, so your opportunities really will, as a major conference school, will come down to – uh, you know, opportunities I use in quotes and facetiously there will come down to the three to five games in non-conference play – and as we've talked about before, this is a real thing that schools need to account for. You need to play those games at home um, 
in order to fill out season ticket packages and a lot of stuff that we do not need to dip down that rabbit hole again, GP. But there just simply aren't a lot of opportunities there for this for the, for the schools that in a given year will fall into the 50 to 100 range of Ken Palm, Net, whatever you want to say. They're trying to break in and get legitimate opponents, and it's becoming harder and harder. So as I serve this back to you, GP, that's why I think – it is so imperative and critical for the selection committee to understand the mechanisms of scheduling, see how the higher-level mid-major teams that should be worthy of inclusion are being scheduled against with a real bias, and take that into account if those teams are truly deemed by metrics, coaches or otherwise, when we get to March, to give them a a, a more fair and deeper look as to whether they deserve to be in because the deck is stacked and it's only going to be getting worse when the power conference teams are getting all of these other opportunities against like-minded teams, which is good, I guess, for the general November-December college basketball because you might get an occasional like more interesting matchup here or there. But when it comes to having teams that should be in the tournament or are good enough that are coming from an OVC and A-Sun, and they're good enough. Coaches will tell you they're good enough. The opportunities just they seem to be drying up. Um, some of the other answers, uh, the, the second, uh, I guess there was a tie for second, two answers, got 17% of the vote. Um, one of them is lack of consistency year over year, um, that the committee needs a clearer message on, pri- on, on, on the priority of the criteria. Um, I, that really doesn't make sense to me. I, I think the, the criteria is pretty crystal clear at this point, and the committee, even though it, it changes, um, the committee is is pretty consistent, which is why it's so easy for anybody who understands this stuff at all to basically predict who's going to get an at-large bid and who's not going to be an at-large bid. There's a reason why, whether it's Jerry Palm or Joe Lenardi or anybody else, is guaranteed to get probably 67 of the 68 teams in the NCAA tournament uh, correct Um Year after year after year. I mean, I got all 68 last year, last this past season. There's a reason why we can all do that, and it's because we understand the criteria and the committee sticks to it, I, I think, fairly well. So I don't really understand that gripe. Do you get that gripe? I, I get it, but I don't agree with it. because I think for coaches, when they logged this complaint, it was, it was more about we – when we see the bracket come out and we see a, a committee chair in a given year explain why this team is in, this team isn't, and then it happens the next year and then the year after that, the reasons that the committee chairs are using year by year by year, they aren't the same. And so if you're a school, whether you're in or you're out, you're on the bubble on the fence and you're just in or just out, or one year you were a four seed, the next year you were a six, and you're listening to the committee chair from one year to the next explain, well, this was important this year and this was. From their individual perspective of what their school was, it was like, well, this is, you know, this is the opposite or completely different from what I heard the guy say last year. We scheduled this way. Here are our results. They just don't seem to be matching up. I think that's why. But if you really look, like if coaches – truly examine what the objective objectives are for the NCAA tournament selection committee. Yes, there's been change with the net and that use of the net got 8% of the vote. Um, I, I get that because there has been some change in recent seasons, but I don't think that the committee is inconsistent on a year by year basis in terms of what it prioritizes. I would argue the things it's prioritizing are moving in the right direction, but still aren't nearly where they need to be. And by the way, 
GP, that got 17% of the vote, as did performance in league should carry more weight. I almost think that these answers not necessarily went hand in hand, but a lot of the coaches would probably be of the same mind when it came to this. I completely disagree uh, for like 50 reasons why performance in league weight should carry uh, performance in league should carry more weight, most notably because college basketball needs to have its November and December mean something not even just for relevance sake GP but for overall balance of league schedule because of non-league schedule because if you only ha- if you had conference play mean more the way it did 15 years ago the non-conference scheduling would be even worse than it is now and I think it's acceptable now but could be better I think that's more about coaches that understand when you get to February 19th the team you have then is obviously different than the, who you are on November 20th to that I would tell coaches yeah but you know what every other program is being evaluated on the same timeline, the same spectrum. So, yeah, it's true. Your team might be better on February 20th, but that's the same the, – the way that you've grown or, or devolved or evolved is the same thing that everyone else is being judged by. I don't agree with that, but a number of coaches said, listen, man, maybe not even for selection but for seeding, it should, should be taken into account how you play, you know, from the, those final 10 games. Because if you are rolling, like if you had a, if you had a terrible start to your season, you had a, a bad injury with a good player for the first six, seven games, and then you are cruising and really you're playing like a five seed, but you get stuck with a nine seed, that's just unfair. I hear that, but at the GP, I disagree with it. You need to wait the game you play on November 21st the same as you do as the game you play on March 21st. Do you agree? Yes, and I under—I actually understand the complaint. If the complaint is rooted in, dude, okay, so we got off to a rough start. We had a young team, but man, by the time it was, as you put it, February 19th, we were one of the best, you know, 25 teams in the country, and yet we got left out of the NCAA tournament because of the damage we did to ourselves in November, December. I, I get that. I, I do think that that can be a real thing, but I, I would just – point out that if you look at all of the popular sports in our country you know the nba you know if you do real damage to to your uh, record um you know in the first half of the season even if you close stronger than anybody else if your record based on the entire season isn't in the top eight in the eastern or western conference you will be left out uh, of the nba playoffs like the game one literally counts as much as game 82 and vice versa. Major League Baseball, same thing. My New York Mets have been one of the better teams in the National League since the All-Star break. But they did so much damage to themselves before the All-Star break that they're probably going to miss the playoffs. Like, Game 1 counts just as much as yeah. Game 47, as Game 88, as Game 115, as Game 162. NFL, if you start 0-4, it doesn't matter if you win your last six games heading into the postseason, if your record because of that 0-4 start isn't good enough to make the playoffs, you'll miss the playoffs. And so I don't debate the idea that you can get better um, as the season moves along in practically any sport that that people play. But in every other sport, the, the first game counts as much as the last game. And I don't know why college basketball should be an exception to that. I agree. Um, and the committee has this right. Uh, I, I'd, I'd probably try and file 10 columns and do 10 podcast episodes with UGP if they ever went back to uh, having more games count near the end. Before we go to the next question, um, 
if you would ask me, I do mid-major would be my top answer. More transparency from the selection committee would be my close second. That got 5% of the vote. Um, I've long said that the committee could do itself no bigger favor, and the NCAA could do itself no bigger favor from a, a PR standpoint if it uh, just operated with a bit more transparency, brought us into the room. It's It's gotten incrementally better as the years have gone by. Like, we get updates like, okay, we have, you know, 24 teams into the field. Okay, this, this, and this. Um, you get that from uh, from Dave Warlock, who does a great job with communications and stats and info for the NCAA. But they could still do more. Um, and, and tied with that at 5% GP was seeding protocol. The committee put – because the committee spends so much time getting teams into the bracket, they don't spend a lot of time – I'm talking just a matter of a few hours – actually seeding the bracket. I think seeding has gotten a little bit better. Like, I remember a decade ago just having huge issues. I still think it could be better. This is a minor quibble. There are bigger things to get to. But I still think year over year we see some teams laying on some seed lines where, to me, it doesn't make a, uh, doesn't make a ton of sense. I'd like to see a little more put into that, but I just think we're years away from that. And then last GP, I was so relieved – so relieved. I think I had two, maybe three coaches, maybe two, that told me that their number one issue was that the tournament wasn't big enough. So thank goodness. And the, and the two coaches two coaches that did tell me that were both over the age of 55, so perhaps a little, uh, I don't know, maybe a little more old school, although the tournament used to be smaller than it is now. But um, I had a, a real curiosity slash concern that us asking this question would lead to like 30% of coaches wanting to expand it. Um, most coaches didn't even bring it up when I talked to them. Or texting with over this, so that's a good thing. Sixty-eight is fine. Sixty-four was perfect, but uh, but expansion doesn't seem to be anywhere remotely on the table, nor should it be. Just some uh, things that maybe didn't show up in uh, the results, but like from my perspective, if I were asked this question, um, I, I I would. I bring up mid-major discrimination. That would be number one for me. I don't think they get a fair shot at getting at-large bids if you have to start from outside of the traditional power structure. You really have to, um, you you really have to build a resume when there's a lot of stuff working against you to even have a shot at it. So that would be number one. The other one, couple of them. I know that they don't project the bracket, so they don't worry about who you might be playing and where in a Sweet 16 game or an Elite 8 game. But I think it's fundamentally wrong when you end up with a regional final and it's the one seed against the two seed, and the one seed is basically playing the two seed on the road. Like, the the two seed is a team from California, mm-hmm. and the one seed's a team from the Midwest, and they got shipped out to the West um, – um, to the West – um, regional to be the one seed and now you're playing a two seed of UCLA in the state of California. I don't think you should have to play a de facto road game if you're the higher seeded team. I understand that there will be um, situations that arise because of upsets that you couldn't possibly plan for but I do think you could plan for a one playing a four in the Sweet 16 or a two playing a three in the right. Sweet 16, or a one playing a two in the Elite Eight, and I wish that would be taken more into account. And I also wish that they would seed with little regard for for geography, like just just make make the four number make the four best teams the one seeds, and I know they do do that, but then make the the next four the two seeds, and make the next four the three seeds, and make the next four the four seeds, while following like some principles that you have that sure. are in place. 
but I don't like it when they try to keep somebody, quote, closer to home at the expense of the seed they otherwise would get. Yeah, I don't I ha- I don't fully disagree with that. I think partly why they do that now is they heard back from so many coaches, presidents, ADs, you know, 10 years ago or whatever that wanted geography to take place. I like a more I'm with you in that I like a truer bracket integrity. Now GP you'll have cl- conflicting potential conflicting principles there though because you could say okay, if I do that then what a few coaches mentioned to me is I want the worst four playing the best two always. Well, you could have that, and then you could have the problem that you have an issue with, though. So if you have the worst four play the best two, if they both made it to the Elite Eight, the best two could be geographically much closer than the worst four. So if that, so if it was between those two GP in that extreme instance, what would you prefer? To have the two-line altered so that it would, it would be more for geography or to stay truer to the S-curve? I would like to stay uh, stay truer to the S curve, but but not at the expense of having the higher seated team play a lower seated team thirty minutes from its campus. Like I know nobody ever feels sorry for Duke, but like when Duke had to play South Carolina in South Carolina in the round of thirty two a few years ago, when South Carolina I believe went to the Final Four, that was wrong. That should not happen. I, I wish there were principles in place to prevent that kind of stuff from happening i'll go back to when i was a beat writer um at the commercial appeal newspaper covering john calipari's memphis team 2006 memphis was the one seed ucla was the two seed they were in the west regional memphis had to play ucla um at oracle arena in oakland and it was 17,000 UCLA fans. It was a road game for the number one seed in the West region. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I wish they would avoid those types of things. Okay. Yeah. It's, listen, there's plenty that uh, the committee still can and hopefully will uh, tweak and update with this process. But, um, but this was a, this was an intriguing one. I would, I would think slash hope that everyone on the committee and tied to the committee uh, found this article, read it, took it to heart and some discussions uh, will be happening in the coming months to kind of continue to improve the process. But uh but we wait and see. All right, next cue. What do you want to get to here, bud? Well, the next one we did earlier this week was do coaches support an Olympic-style model for college athletics? And we'll get into that question next. But first, check this out. Reminder, folks, college football season's back. NFL season is now officially here. So our promo for Sportsline ends this weekend. If you want to use Sportsline to help with your wagering, fantasy, all that stuff, it's the place you want to be. True story. I have a buddy who signed up last week. He has gone 10-0 and based off of our expert picks and using uh, the algorithms on the site. So Sportsline.com backslash join. You want to select monthly promo code Norlander in capital letters. First month will be just $1. Sportsline.com backslash join. Promo code Norlander. Join now. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. 
The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do, like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. So the question we asked earlier this week on Tuesday was whether coaches would support an Olympic-style model for college athletics. And I think you and I were both pleasantly surprised by the response. We don't really talk about these. I mean, we, we discussed the questions and what we're going to ask, obviously, but we don't sit around, you and I, going, ooh, I bet this is going to be 74% this or 58% that. But I believe if we would have had the conversation and you asked me, what kind of response are we going to get to the question, would you support an Olympic-style model that allows student-athletes to profit off of their name, image, and likeness? I would have thought it would be basically, you know, something close to 50-50. And yet it was 77% yes, only 23% no. Uh, More than three-fourths of the coaches we asked said they would be in favor of their players and really all student-athletes in college athletics uh, being able to profit off of their name, image, and likeness to be able to get uh, what is generally described as fair market value. I was pleasantly surprised. I gather you were as well. Yes, if I had guessed going in, I would have said 55-45, no. That would have probably been my guess going in. Um, I got yeses from I got yeses from coaches who have vocalized to me in the past that they are against players being paid in other ways. But when it came to like a couple coaches, I called up. I said, "Okay, here's the next question. I already know your answer, but you know, here we go." And they said, "No, if it's just if it's." If it's the player's jersey being sold at the bookstore and he's earning a profit off of that, I don't, I don't have an issue with that. Um, a couple of coaches did say that while this should be a fundamental right, if it ever does happen, and I had, I mean, I must have had at least fifteen coaches tell me this is happening. Like it, it is not going to. We are not stopping this. It will happen by the end of the decade. Um, but it, if and when it happens some of the issues that will arise from it, unintended consequences or foreseeable consequences. Well, you know, there's always going to be issues surrounding uh, players being compensated for their ability at the collegiate level, um, which I don't necessarily agree with, but this is a fundamental right that the players should have. And not only did we get 77% of the coaches saying yes, I mean, I had a number of very emphatic yeses, like, you know, I I almost feel a little guilt sometimes when we are able to make, and this come, came from coaches and, and power conferences, we are able to make so much money, and our players do get the benefit of scholarships, and they are, and players now are treated so much better than they ever have been, which is irrefutable. A lot of the perks and benefits they get are irrefutable. They they live a really good life, but they should still be entitled to more when we see how much money gets pumped into the sport, how much money the NCAA tournament provides. And a lot of players aren't going to make any money 
they're going to have the if this rule was ever to be allowed, they'd have the potential to do so. But there'd be a rude awakening for guys who think, okay, now I'm now I'm going to have the opportunity. When in reality, I mean, one coach told me like, you know, I take the second best player on my team. He's a good player. I honestly don't know if you if you allowed him to do this, if he'd make more than two thousand dollars in a year. Which it's great if you get two thousand dollars more than you otherwise getting. But this is not going to suddenly be a situation where we're going to have ninety guys in college basketball raking in twenty to hundred grand a year. A lot of coaches were skeptical of that, but that's another issue altogether. Bottom line, Parish, heavy percentage are in favor of this. The NCAA has to take this into account. You've got. Younger coaches, I don't know if I had one coach under 35 say no to this, which is also very important because, you know, history will tell you. Change is inevitable uh, as, the, as, the, as the generations move along, the revolutions will come. And it's coming with this very much so in college sports. Uh, I'm just curious as to when it will happen. And, um, yeah, man, that's a, that's a high percentage. Last thing, and then you can take it where you want to take it. Right now, this week, in fact, it might be happening today, Parrish. There is legislation going through in the state of California. I think we talked about this on the podcast, but as a refresher to listeners, where college athletes would be able to benefit off their name, image, and likeness. Now, there are some things with the with the potential law, like it's not like just this complete like freedom that you might think, but it would allow players to do this in theory. Kicking in in 2023, Mark Emmett and the NCAA said, "Hey, listen, if you do this, you might you might trigger <laughs> our schools not to be eligible to play for uh, championship competition, but what." Whatever. The California doesn't appear to be slowing on this. I think the vote happens today, Parrish. If not today, maybe tomorrow. And if it passes, all it takes is then, uh, I believe, the governor to sign off on it. And then the NCAA is going to have a ticking clock. Because then the state of California will have its student-athletes come 2023 be eligible for this kind of stuff. And it will force the NCAA's hand. And I'll remind you that the Rice Commission, amid a lot of its criticisms, did say this should be seriously examined and apparently is so uh, behind closed doors in, Indi- in Indianapolis with the NCAA. But I... Uh, GPI, I'm inclined to believe that with the results of this survey, in addition to what's happening with California, what the Rice Commission said, that something, maybe I'm naive and hopeful, but I got to believe that something is going to change here uh, within the next four to five years, and, and athletes will have some sort of opportunity to benefit off this. Uh, what the Rice Commission said, if I remember correctly, is that they're open to the idea of student athletes profiting off of their name, image, and likeness, but they are not going to, they don't think it should be able to be used as a recruiting tool. And the point I made at the time was, I don't know how you separate those two, like because it will be used as a recruiting tool. And that is why um, the coaches who told you they don't think there'll be 90 or 100 players out there getting $20,000, I I think they're wrong. Uh, I think the number would be more than most realize because it would be a recruiting tool. Uh, When people think of athletes profiting off their name, image, and likeness, their mind immediately goes to somebody like Johnny Manziel. He should be able to sign autographs for $10,000 on a Saturday afternoon. And yes, I agree that he should. People think that um, they, they think of Nike maybe wanting to put Marvin Bagley on a billboard or Adidas wanting to put Josh Jackson on, on a billboard. And then, and, and, but, but that's not what this would trickle down to a local level. It would be as simple as, Um, a booster of a middle-of-the-pack Big Ten school who owns a pharmacy um, who is um, urged by a coaching staff to make an offer to um, a a player to to do whatever for his pharmacy um, at a rate that will, A, convince him to come there, or B, 
convince him to stay there. And so I just don't know how you thread that needle of we're going to um, allow student athletes to, to, to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, but it cannot be a recruiting tool because it, it will be a recruiting tool. And I'm on record for years now. I'm fine with it because the fear that some coaches have is that, and we've talked about this before, um, this would lead to Duke having a recruiting advantage over somebody else because a prospect would be made well aware that if you enroll at Duke, you're guaranteed to get a Nike endorsement deal at uh, X amount of dollars. And if you don't enroll at Duke, you go somewhere else, well, then that won't be uh, available to you, or at least it, it might not be. So suddenly Duke's got an advantage and Kentucky's got an advantage and, uh, you know, uh, North Carolina has an advantage. And as one coach told you, um, then what's to stop FedEx from putting James Wiseman on a billboard for, let's just say, $400,000? And the answer to that question is nothing is going to stop FedEx if allowed from doing that. It's a big corporate partner with the University of Memphis. It's a big corporate entity in the city of Memphis, headquartered there. They would recruit like crazy for the University of Memphis. And so the University of Memphis would have um, recruiting advantages in men's basketball that say, I don't know, Southern Miss probably wouldn't. Um, but my response to this has always been, um, yes, Duke, Duke would have recruiting advantages. They already do. North Carolina would have recruiting advantages. They already do. Kansas would have recruiting advantages. They already do. And what you would find out if you put this system in place is that student athletes would get whatever they're worth. In some cases, a lot. In other cases, not as much. And in some cases, nothing more than the scholarship and cost of attendance stipend they already get. But everybody would get what anybody deems their worth. And I promise you, if we did it for 10 years and then we look back at the recruiting rankings, whether it be football, men's basketball or any other sport where recruiting rankings exist, they wouldn't look much different than they've looked for the past 10 years. I contend that the the schools that get the best players now would largely get the best players then. The schools that win the championships now would be the schools that win the championships then. And yet it would be under an umbrella, a system where the student athletes finally, after decades and decades of being on the wrong side of this, the student athletes finally get um, – what what they should be getting. I'm not convinced that would be the case to the broad ends that I think you're laying out there, GP. And then by the way, I'm for this because I'd want a little bit of chaos. Um, one, I think there'd be high-level warfare. So uh, the outcomes might be indiscernible where like, okay, if we went back to the old way, uh, Kansas would have got this player, but now under this new system, it's Kentucky. Like whatever, one versus the other. But the the warfare for getting those recruits, I think, would be pretty fascinating. But I also think that you like you could at the lower level, like you could still have some impact. Like Harvard's got a thirty eight billion dollar endowment. If you've got a player who's being recruited by high level A ten schools, and then Harvard gets involved, and there's real money that can be implemented there, like you could have some schools like Stanford on Stanford on the other end. Like maybe Stanford can beat out Arizona for recruit. Stanford's endowment's got to be closing in on, you know, that's the other point I've made is that people think it would just make it too top heavy when it comes to getting prospects. Um, it, it's top heavy right now. The, the, the same schools get the best players year after year after year with rare exceptions. And yet your point is exactly right. And this is a point I've made before as well. You could be as good as you want to be, a, a, as good as your corporate backing and boosters want you to be 
um, you can be that good. Like if there is a Stanford alum who's got more money than he knows what to do with and decides, I want Stanford to be a major player in men's basketball, I'm going to start putting um, endorsement deals on the table for every McDonald's All-American west of the Mississippi, then Stanford could be a major player in men's basketball. And I'm fine with it because at its core, all that would do is mean it would create a system where the, the schools that have the biggest corporate backing and the most passionate boosters would have advantages to be the very best in men's basketball. And guess what? That is basically the system we already have in place right now. Parrish, it would be really fascinating. I mean, I actually think there'd be more intrigue, speculation, discussion uh, (laughs) around college basketball than there is now. And that probably makes traditionalists uneasy. I think this exact thing that we're laying out is exactly why the NCAA has fought against it forever. But whatever, man, I am I am all for any kind of scenario environment that brings about those exact kind of things because I think it would actually uh, do wonders for NCAA basketball and its, and its off-season uh, awareness among anything else. Well, but the, 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 uh, First, let me, let me say this. The reason the NCAA has fought against this forever is because the NCAA is run by university presidents, and university presidents don't want this system and the reason is because they would lose control like right now there is a guy who is a missouri alum who donates two hundred thousand dollars a year to the athletic department and it goes straight to the athletic department and the athletic department controls that money if the system we've laid out is put into place that guy might only donate fifty thousand dollars to the athletic department and he might put another hundred fifty thousand dollars into endorsement deals for basketball players or football players or anything else. So the universities would lose, the athletic departments would lose control of large amounts of money that would, instead of going to them, would be funneled directly to student athletes and their families. I don't think they want to lose um, the control. Um, But again, I don't care about that. I'm not a university president. But if you're looking for a hurdle to getting this system put in place, I, I think that's largely it. The, the, the people in power don't want to give up control, and this system undeniably puts them in a position where they lose con- some control. But, you know, you, you start thinking about all of the, the, you know, people always think about the downside, like, or the issues that maybe they don't like that this would create. And I get that, but I, I, I think it's also important to focus on some of the uh, issues it would create that, that you might like. Like, there's no more scandal. Because if players student athletes are allowed to take literally whatever anybody is willing to give them then there's not there's no more cheating you, you, you can only break the rule if if you do something against the rule if the rule is you could take whatever anybody's willing to give you then you're not cheating so we never again have a recruiting scandal you don't have to wonder why this kid went to school a instead of school b we'll know exactly why it'll be documented all every everything's done above board and the other thing it could do particularly for the sport of men's basketball is it could uh, keep people in school longer like right now if yes. if you've got a basically top 60 player in terms of the NBA draft on your roster you're going to lose him but what if it was allowed for let's just take it back to FedEx if FedEx were was could tell a projected second round pick or a projected first round pick yeah, you can turn pro and you'll probably be in the G League or, or you can go overseas or maybe you get a minimum uh, NBA contract and you're making $500,000 a year. 
what if we paid you $400,000 or $800,000 to stay in school another year and then continue to endorse uh, FedEx? Would you be willing to do that? So we might have better roster retention. In fact, I'm certain we would. And again, I, I can't stress this enough. You'd, you, people have for decades been talking about how do you clean up college basketball? Well, you just allow players to take whatever um, anybody's willing to give them, and suddenly college basketball's cleaned up. Yeah, and the, but I, I do think that uh, the sniping or potential backroom stuff and the fights to get those players would bring uh, <laughs> disputes, if not controversy. And I say that as a, as a good thing. I, I would I would love if some of that stuff was brought more out into the open pairs. It would bring a more more drama to the sport. Um, and I, I I'm personally all for it. That's all. But like here, here's my thing. Like I, there, there, it wouldn't be um, sniping as much as it would be negotiations. Like maybe uh, a kid has always dreamed of playing at Kentucky, but a car dealership in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, says, "Hey, listen, we are putting a contract on the table for you of 1.2 million dollars." I know this is excessive, but just play along. <laughs> Administrators uh, listening to this podcast are like, "This is a disaster. This is exactly why the rules can never change." Go ahead. You, uh, hey, we're willing to put this on the table for you. It's four hundred thousand dollars more than what Kentucky's boosters or Nike or whatever is willing to put on the table for you. Um, maybe you'll come to Alabama for two years as opposed to go to Kentucky. And then Kentucky's people got to decide, do we want to up the ante or just let the kid go to Alabama? And again, if you don't think this kind of stuff goes on already, you're out of your mind. It's just done all under the table. All we do here is take these, these backroom negotiations that have been going on forever and we bring it all into the light. You, you'll know, like a kid will be able to sit there on signing day and say, I'm taking my talents to um, UCLA, and the reason is because Under Armour <laughs> you know, uh, it has signed me to a two-year $2.2 million contract. <laughs> Just... Who cares? Like that, why, who, why? I'm fine with that. Oh, it would be glorious. Oh, my it would, gosh. It would, it would be awesome. And I know traditionalists are against it, just like they were against amateurs being paid in the Olympics and becoming professionals, just like they were against uh, wild card teams in Major League Baseball. Traditionalists are always against anything new, and then we get it, and it's like, oh, this isn't that bad. I had one coach, and he's a smart guy. He's a great coach. He's somebody I, I, I respect immensely. But his argument against this, he was one of the no votes, was, um, you know, when, when Olympians were able to profit off name, image, and likeness, then people stopped caring about the Olympics. And the same thing would happen to college basketball. And I just uh, respectfully I, I, disagree I just with that I don't because remotely agree all with I know that, yeah. about the Olympics is Michael Phelps is making $20 million. And when he swims, people watch. You know, Simone Biles is a multimillionaire. When she flips, people watch. I don't yeah. think I don't remember people stop caring about the the women's gymnastics team or our best swimmers or Usain Bolt. Um, I don't really think it's had that impact on the Olympics. I, I agree. I just I just I agree with you, and I disagree with the coach uh, for that. And plus, like there is a there is a community and uh, alumni el element to college sports where there are, the people are going to stick around. That's yeah. I, I don't think that that uh, that's a downside um, at all. Um, all right, you want to get to the final cue here? Yeah, the last question, or the most recent question, it's not the last question. We've still got um, a few more Candid Coaches questions to publish. But the most recent one uh, we had, which published on Thursday morning, is what team will win the 2020 NCAA tournament. 
And more than 50% of the coaches we poll, 54% to be exact, said that it will be the Michigan State uh, Spartans. And so that suggests that um, we're right to have Michigan State number one in the top 25 and one. And odds makers are right to have Michigan State as the favorite to to, to cut the nets next um, April in Atlanta. Will yeah. we be in Atlanta? That That is that is right. We'll be in the A for that. Um, I hope that, and we've talked about this before, but I hope that our poll or other polls didn't have too much influence on coaches. I can't help but think that it did. Uh, we've, I, As far as I can tell, Parrish, I think this is the most dominant winner ever for this question. Uh, we've, had, we've had some teams finish in the 40% uh, range before. Don't know if we've ever had a team finish this high. Um, what this is going to lead to, to my surprise, but I did research it, uh, Michigan State has never been the preseason number one team in the AP poll in its history. It's been number two, but it's never been number one. It will be number one this year. It, it, Every off-season, way too early, top 25, whatever you want to call it, has Sparty in the one spot as far as I can tell. And if they're not there, they're second. Um, AP voters will take note of that. And I cannot see a scenario in which any other team jumps over the Spartans when the AP poll is released in mid to late October. So that will be uh, program history when that happens. I think it's viable. And even more so, as I note in the piece, Parrish, <laughs> little voice crack there, hello, um, you've got the past – Every champion since Duke in 2015, and really most champions, excluding that 2012 uh, Kentucky team, have just been more veteran-laden or reliant upon veteran play. doesn't mean they haven't had freshman stars, freshman good players, but recent history strongly suggests, and historical history too, historical history, that's a little bit redundant there, um, that you need older guys to win the national championship. And we had a small tweak on the question here. It wasn't who do you think will be the best team in college basketball? Who do you think will win the NCAA tournament? Which are kind of one and the same, but not not the best team doesn't always win the NCAA tournament. So with Michigan State returning Cassius Winston and a lot of other players, loses a couple of important guys, but returning a lot of other good players, getting some new talent in, I think it makes the most sense, particularly because Cassius Winston running the point guard position, a returning All-American, he, uh, him, you know, guiding that force. I thought Michigan State would win, not to this sort of level. I was surprised by the lack of votes for all other teams. Um, shouts to Florida for getting uh, getting a few votes. I think obviously Kerry Blackshear getting added to that roster made a serious impact there. Uh, UNC and Gonzaga respectively got a few votes, but they didn't finish in the in the top end of the poll. In fact, it was Michigan State and then Kansas at 17%. I mean, that's just a massive gulf between MSU and Kansas. Kentucky at 12%. Duke got 7%, and then Florida got 5%. So history shows that this question, usually one of the answers yields the winner. Whether you know It's been best team in years past, but if you want to say best team is the one who wins the national title, usually one of the schools that gets the answer, uh, gets answered to a, a certain degree, winds up winning it. So if you're a fan of the Spartans, Jayhawks, Wildcats, Blue Devils, Gators, throwing Tar Heels, and uh, Gonzaga Bulldogs uh, feel good because chances are strong that one of those teams will win the national championship. There was also a rogue vote for another team, but <laughs> I, I can't, GP, I cannot in good conscience even name that school on this podcast. Shout out to that coach for, you know, showing some loyalty to a prior school. But that team will be good, but I can't seriously list them among the other ones. Uh, the top five again, Michigan got 54% of the vote, followed by Kansas, 17% of the vote, Kentucky, 12%, Duke, 7%. Florida got 5%, and that obviously is the byproduct of uh, the, the the late addition of grad transfer Kerry Blackshear from Virginia Tech. Last thing before we get out of here, Kate Cunningham is officially visiting Oklahoma State this weekend. 
go ahead and commit. Just be done with this, right? I mean, we talked about this a few podcasts back. Yeah, that would uh, that would be ideal for Oklahoma State. Um, I think bro- he, but uh, hold on, Paris, doesn't he have? I, I know you're saying like go ahead and commit, but and I have not been like up to date, up to date on uh, on the Cade Cunningham recruitment here in recent weeks. But I think he also has a scheduled visit to Kentucky's campus soon so i don't think that he will be committing but he obviously should but I, i'm not anticipating that unless i unless i'm way off or i've missed something here it's disrespectful your brother's on staff your brother was hired so that you would enroll at oklahoma state go enroll at oklahoma state i'd love to i'd love to hear some of those conversations man but yeah kate cunningham who i think is actually the best player in his class going to oklahoma state this weekend we are now entering into by the way official visit season uh due to you know, college football programs having notable games. This is obviously a, a, a prominent tactic. Or uh, as we get into October, when schools have their uh, season opening midnight madness-ish kind of festivities, official visits will pick up, and I would think we'll get a few more commitments. Um, but, yes, I know. Well, Cade Cunningham to Oklahoma State, it feels like an inevitability, but I don't think it's happening this weekend. But if we do our podcast next weekend and he's he's committed, uh, that, would be, uh, that would be fine. Um, as we wrap here, though, my Bears play tonight. so yeah. My I'm, little homeboy, Anthony Miller. My little homeboy from Memphis. That's right. Anthony Miller, who I think is uh, is set up for a pretty strong sophomore season with, with my Bears here. I'm very, I'm very pumped for that. Um, so for those who have listened to a college basketball podcast as you get ready for the first NFL Thursday, first NFL weekend, second college football weekend, appreciate you. I do have to get so, give some love to our guy, Will Brinson. Parrish, Brinson. First of all, he hosts the Pick Six NFL podcast. You realize he's doing that five days a week. I do. Don't don't get any ideas. I'm not getting any ideas. I'm giving love to Brinson, Pick Six NFL podcast. I pro- if you like our podcast, Brinson does a great job. They bring on their entire NFL team. They do, they're now doing Sunday night uh, Sunday night podcast for for reactions off the big games and what happened over the weekend there. So you can obviously download, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Pick Six Podcast. Brinson genuinely does a really good job, and he is able to. I gotta I, I gotta talk to him. He's able to do these podcasts, and like the guests can can talk over each other. I don't know how he's doing it, but I gotta figure this out so we can get in on that as well because we still haven't accomplished that yet but uh but yeah so if you're not already do with the nfl season coming i just wanted to give a, a little bump to to will and the pick six podcast guys they're doing a great job yeah could you like could you like actually find out what, what they do to be able to to hear each other when they're talking at the same time because it is my number one complaint about arts sometimes people will say god it's like um it's a b a b a b like um norlander talks and then parish talks and then norlander talks and then parish talks for a long time and repeats himself and then norlander talks and then parish <laughs> talks for a long time and repeats himself and the reason we have to do it that way is because if norlander's talking and i start talking over him he can't hear me and if i'm talking and he starts trying to interrupt me i can't hear him and we know that it's not impossible to to fix that problem but for some reason my my technology expert Matt Norlander has never been able to fix the problem. So if we if we had a candid podcast, uh, a candid podcasters uh, series, and uh, as opposed to you know what's your number one issue with the selection tournament committee, it'd be what's your number one issue with the Eye on College Basketball podcast. This would obviously be your one hundred percent vote, which I I think I would agree with, by the way, because yeah, so I I know you'd love nothing more than to be able to interrupt me frequently, and I I, I do agree actually. I'd love that uh, that all the same. I think I've done it actually twice on this podcast. But you had either little idea or no idea it happened. Don't worry. 
I didn't interrupt you so much. But yes, I do want to fix this uh, as soon as possible so that we can uh, just talk over each other left and right. Because that really will take the podcast to another level. I know. All right. You get in touch with Will Branson. You figure this out. And I'm going to close with shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Teagle. He's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. And remember, go subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast. You can do it over at Apple Podcasts. Hit that subscribe button. Rate it favorably. Five stars. Leave a nice comment. All I ever ask from you. And uh, enjoy the NFL opening weekend. We'll talk to you again next week. Till then, take care.